When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Welcome back to Unshaken, my friends, and congratulations. You have made it to Malachi. Oh, it's been a while since we started this book, way back in Genesis, with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Chronologically, it's been several thousand years. And for some of you, you're probably thinking, it's kind of felt that way literally too. <laughs> we have spent some serious time in scripture this year, believe me. In fact, I did the math and looked over things. And as of last week, when we studied Haggai and Zechariah, we crossed over the 200 hour mark of unshaken scripture study just this year in the Old Testament. Uh, and that is no small feat. That's a massive amount of time spent in scripture. And so take a moment and pat yourself on the back. Take a bow, give yourself a standing ovation. I am in awe of each of you for just enduring it well. I hope that you'll be exalted on high as a result. So now that we're here in Malachi, you have fought the good fight. You are about to finish your course. And, and again, my hat's off to each of you for doing that. I hope the Old Testament has been as life-changing for you as it has been for me. Uh, I've read the Old Testament many times, but I've never spent this much time in the Old Testament in one year. Uh, and it's been a thrill for me. So the sense of, of getting to Malachi, uh, I, on the one hand, I've, I've got all kinds of feelings uh, about this. On the one hand, I'm so thrilled that we're finally here uh, because it has been a, a massive journey. And to arrive at the finish line is, is a beautiful feeling. A second reason I'm grateful to be in Malachi, though, is this finish line is followed by another starting line. And I'm so excited for the New Testament next year. Uh, it, if, you, if it's been a while since you've hung out with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you haven't immersed yourself verse by verse through the letters of Paul, uh, gear up for an amazing year of scripture study next year in the New Testament. And then there's a third reason I'm grateful to be in Malachi. And that's just the fact that I love the book of Malachi. <laughs> it's not just that it's the finish line. It's anywhere you put it. The words he teaches and the way he does it are so powerful. And I really hope that you'll get a sense of that and a feeling for that as we study the book of Malachi. Let me give you a little bit of background on him and his time period, and then we'll dive into the text. Uh, his name means my messenger. Malak in Hebrew is messenger. And the I at the end is the suffix for I, me or mine. And so Malachi, Malachi is my messenger. There are even some scholars out there that wonder, was there a real prophet whose name was Malachi? Or is this just a title? And there was some unnamed messenger out there that the Lord gave this message to. Uh, we would vouch for the first, that this is a real person. After all, the Lord quotes him by name in 3 in Nephi. Uh, but the time period that this messenger, Malachi, lived in, we've already seen a cloud of witnesses around the Assyrian time period. Uh, another cloud of witnesses during the Babylonian. Here, Malachi belongs to the cloud of witnesses during the Persian period. Last week, when we studied Haggai and Zechariah, Malachi would have been a near contemporary, probably on the tail end of their ministries. Or if you go back to the historical books, when we got to Ezra and Nehemiah, they're calling out the people, we've got to rebuild the temple. Well, that's a little before the time of Malachi as well. Chronologically, this is the end. 
and after Malachi, we come to this, this end of the prophets, as we read on the bottom of the page after chapter 4. And we have to wait a while through the, the Greek Empire until the Roman Empire comes onto the scene. And then we'll start with the New Testament. Yeah, so this is right before the, that so-called intertestamental period, where we don't have canonized scripture for but to finish with Malachi as he's, I mean, if you remember last week, we got to build this temple, right? Consider your ways, sew up your bag, have something to show for it. And between Haggai, Zechariah, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah, it works. And they, they construct the temple. But by the time Malachi comes onto the scene, in some ways, I love his timing because it's, it's like, okay, great, you have the temple. Congratulations. What are you going to do with it? now that you have it? Or perhaps an even more important question, what are you going to be as a result of having the temple? It could be a shiny new bag, but if it still has holes because of the way you approach it, then you'll still have have nothing to show for it when all is said and done. So Malachi's message in many ways is is to sew up bags, to purify our purposes, to clarify our intent, to make sure we're not going through the motions so that this new temple that we have will be put to divine purposes. If you think about President Nelson, who seems to announce another 10 or 20 temples every conference, as excited as we are about the increase of quantity in temples, I think the Lord would be even more impressed with an increase of quality on the part of our own temple worship. And Malachi has a few things to say about that as well. Now, he's a prophet not just for his people, but for all people. You see that in 3 Nephi, when Jesus comes among the Nephites, and much of his post-mortal ministry was a scriptural one. And he's there among the people and asks, let me see your scriptures. And he, he knows this already, but helps them see, ah, oh, you guys missed Malachi. Uh, Lehi left Jerusalem long before Malachi came onto the scene, so his writings could not have been on the brass plates. Let's fix that, shall we? And so he quotes it and makes sure that the Nephites record in full chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Malachi. The way Jesus sets this up is in 3 Nephi 24, verse 1. It came to pass that he commanded them that they should write the words which the Father had given unto Malachi, which he should tell unto them. And it came to pass that after they were written, he expounded them. I would have loved to have been in on Jesus' class, verse by verse through Malachi. Yeah, mine will, will pale in comparison. But then he says, And these are the words which he did tell unto them, saying, Thus said the Father unto Malachi. And then Jesus quotes Malachi 3 in chapter 4 in their entirety. Now, do, careful not to read too much into that. We're like, whoa, whoa, wait. This is the words to, of the Father to Malachi? Did the Father eliminate the middleman? and communicate directly with Malachi? I mean, that would put him on an entirely new level as far as prophetic utterance is concerned. Now, if you think about divine investiture of authority and what Jesus will say in the New Testament, that all his words really are the Father's words. And if you've seen me, you've seen him. And so this typical Jesus stepping out from before the Father so that the Father gets all the glory. That's Jesus through and through. Uh, And so, yes, but... Ever since the fall, the Father has communicated through the Son. Christ has been the intermediary. Okay? But all that notwithstanding, to, to put it in that perspective, this is a message that God, God himself wants the people to have. He gave it to his messenger, Malachi. And Malachi is getting that message to the, to the end of the row. This living water's got to get all the way down. Now, one other example of this, just to put in perspective how important Malachi's words are, 
There was a time in Joseph Smith's life, shortly before the martyrdom, he's in Nauvoo and he's in hiding. He is thinking about work for the dead. That's what's been on his mind. It was recently revealed to him and he just can't stop thinking about it. So even though he's kind of undercover, the word can't be. And so he writes this letter to the saints in section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And he is just exulting over this glorious doctrine. There's more exclamation points in section 128 than any other passage of scripture. He's stoked about this. But he quotes all kinds of scripture to let the people know, this is, this is old stuff. This is not just me making up things. This is divine doctrine. And God has dropped hints about this throughout time. And so he quotes Paul from the New Testament. He quotes Malachi from the Old Testament. And, and when he does it, Notice what he says. I love this verse. Section 128, verse 17. I will give you a quotation from one of the prophets. And the prophet he's going to quote is Malachi. But then he describes this prophet in this way. This prophet, who, one of the prophets who had his eye fixed on certain things. Now, what was Malachi's laser focus? His eye was fixed on, one, the restoration of the priesthood. We'll really see that in chapter 3. Number two, the glory is to be revealed in the last days. And three, in an especial manner, this most glorious of all subjects belonging to the everlasting gospel, namely the baptism for the dead. And by baptism for the dead, Joseph means all the work for the dead. Ceilings and endowments and so on. It's all beginning to coalesce as the Lord reveals these truths to him. But for him to look back at Malachi and realize, oh, he saw this coming from so long ago. Yes, his eye was fixed on these things. And I think the Lord wants us to have our eyes fixed on them as well. If we can learn from Malachi how that's to be done, then this will be time well spent in Scripture. So dive into chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So he begins like so many other prophets have, speaking of this burden that God has placed upon his shoulders, weighing him down, the heavy mantle. But it's a message to Israel. And by that, he's not referring specifically to the northern kingdom. That ship has sailed. Those ten tribes are long lost. So when he speaks of Israel, he's talking about the whole kingdom. He's talking north and south as if they were united once again. I fixed on the restoration when those two sticks do become one in the hand again. I could even say not just north-south as far as Israel and Judah is concerned, but Israel ancient as well as Israel modern. This burden of his message is meant for both dispensations, especially when you get to chapter 3 and chapter 4. Yeah, when you go to verse 2 and 3, notice, well, start in 2 and see how this message, this burden begins. I have loved you, saith the Lord. It's the first thing out of the prophet's mouth. And you need to understand that everything you hear from this moment forward will be, will be said in love. You need to know that because there's going to be some hard sayings who can hear them. This is going to be tough love in a way. Or borrowing from, from Paul's words to the Ephesians, he will be speaking the truth in love. And the truth sadly can hurt sometimes. Remember Nephi's words to Laman and Lemuel, the wicked take the truth to be hard because it cutteth them. Well, this is a good doctor. And this might hurt for a moment, but the only thing I'm trying to cut out are things that are destroying you from within. So please understand that as I cry repentance, as I point out places for improvement, please know that I'm speaking in love and try to accept it in the same spirit. The problem is the people don't. 
And so notice what follows. And this, we have to spend some time with this literary construction because we're going to see it over and over and over again in Malachi. From what I can tell, he's the only prophet that does it to this extent in such a short amount of text. It's, the literary device is called a disputation. And it's Israel disputing with God. Yeah, I mean, no wonder the Lord had to begin by calming things down and just saying, look, I love you. I always have. Because part of the disputation is Israel pushing back against practically everything the Lord says and just not accepting it and just, oh yeah, well, whatever. And then they throw something back in, in the Lord's face. You'll see how, what I mean when you notice the next phrase. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, and this is their response. Each one of these disputations, you'll see a phrase like that. Yet ye say, or and ye say, or but ye say. So here's what the Lord is saying, but here's Israel's response. And, and it's usually, almost, almost invariably, taking something the Lord just said and throwing it right back at him. So, for example, in this one, yet ye, he says, I've loved you, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? So now you see that wherein is present in, in pretty much every one of these disputations as well. And the wherein is kind of Israel saying, what are you talking about? What do you mean based on what you just said? You say you love us? Well, where's the proof of that? Wherein have you loved us? This is brutal. Do you remember when we were talking about Jeremiah as, as a marriage therapist? Dr. Jeremiah? Yeah, and here he's trying to sit down the husband, Jehovah, and the wife, Israel, and try to patch up the relationship? Well, that was kind of our construct to make sense of Jeremiah's words. Remember the book of Hosea, where some marriage therapy was, was essential? Hosea representing Jehovah and his wife Gomer, a wife of whoredoms, representing Israel. So this is a marriage that's on the rocks. Now, when that's true in our case, in the human case, it's always both couples are, or both halves of the couple are partly to blame. By the way, my, the, the puppies are going crazy out there. So I, I hope you can, this is just, welcome to chaos in the Halverson home, okay? Uh, as you hear the yipping and yapping, just embrace it, okay? Uh, and try to ignore it if possible. I'll do the same. That, that might be a tall order for me. Anyway, what you're seeing in Hosea and Gomer is, like I said, in our case, husband and wife always have, are both partially to blame. In Jehovah's case, he's not to blame. It's all on Israel. Uh, picture a Hosea doing his very best to coax Gomer to go see the marriage therapist so that you can have a third party just trying to soften some of the communication. But the challenge here, if we're sticking with Hosea and Gomer as our example, imagine Hosea bringing something up to their therapist and just saying, well, you know, doctor, we're really trying to work things out because I just, I, I love my wife and I always have. And before he even finishes the sentence, she chimes in, just pipes up and says, oh, whatever. You say love, but I've never felt it. And picture this poor marriage, marriage therapist, like, it, it's okay. I, let, let's not talk over each other. Is that all right? Um, and let's let Hosea kind of share his perspective. We, I definitely want to hear from you as well, Gomer, okay? But let's let him get his thoughts out. But she just can't help it. And whether that is getting defensive, whether it's self-deception or self-denial, you'll see this time after time on the part of Israel. If, if you're in a practically perfect marriage and you can't even imagine what marriage therapy would be like, uh, maybe this analogy will work. Imagine you're a parent doing your very best to raise a child, but this is a now a belligerent teenager. 
And even when you are completely calm and just trying to lead to parent out of compassion and lead out of love, this child won't even let you finish a sentence before they throw some word back in your face. And they just, they want to get their words in edgewise. Hopefully one of those, well, hopefully neither one of those applies to you, (laughs) but uh, hopefully you at least relate to one of them enough that these kinds of disputations will make sense. Because like I said, we'll see a lot of them. So let's begin again. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? And here's the Lord's response. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now, hated there is way too strong a word. God didn't hate Esau. In fact, when Isaac blessed Jacob with the birthright, he did give Esau an incredibly similar blessing. Gave him all the blessing that he could. Uh, God blessed Esau with incredible wealth. He blessed him with with a territory that he would be able to call his own. And the land of Edom, the Edomites, are the descendants of Esau. Now, there's not a lot of love loss between the Israelites and the Edomites throughout much of history especially post-Babylonian period. There's some strong feelings there. So I can see why Malachi would use words like that, because in some ways Israel is like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's true. He, does, he loves us. He hates those. At least we hate those Edomites. In a way, it's, it's more like the Lord is saying, go back to Jacob and Esau. And tradition would say that Esau was, since Esau was the older brother, he should have been the birthright brother. He should have been the one that I loved, that I chose. Jacob should have been the one playing second fiddle. But that's not how it went. Esau didn't choose the birthright. And in fact, speaking of strong language, it says that he despised the birthright. And that's probably too strong too. But he treated it as if it were nothing. In a way, that's treating God as if he were nothing. And since he looked down upon God then in a way, God has to return that. And he ended up choosing Jacob instead. Don't feel loved, Israelites? Go back to where this whole thing started. And I loved your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Remember, this message is for all of Israel. I chose you. You're a chosen people. If that's not love, I don't know what is. Now, if you keep going here, we're going to see a little bit more about the Edomites, okay, before we get back to the Israelites, because he's really trying to prove this point, I chose Israel. And I chose Israel because Israel chose me. Are you still doing so? So look at verse 4 and 5. He says, whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, and they were, they were brought low by all of these foreign conquerors, just like the Israelites were. But notice the Edomite plan, but we will return and build the desolate places. Now, that's fine. That's what Israel's doing, right? Under Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah, Israel comes back and begins to rebuild. Why not Edom doing the same thing? But notice what the Lord says next. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and ye shall say, Ah, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Now, what he's getting at there is Edom, yes, they want to come, but the Edomites want to come back and rebuild, but they're not rebuilding in righteousness. If you remember, there was a passage in Isaiah where he was talking about kind of the belligerent, that we're going to kind of throw it back in God's face, like, oh yeah, we'll get the last laugh. I don't care if you destroy us, we'll come roaring back. 
He talked about, oh, we built with bricks and those were broken down. Fine, we'll come back and build with hewn stones. How's that? A similar sense here from the Edomites. And so the Lord is saying, oh, you go ahead and try to rebuild. I will tear that down because you haven't changed. And nothing you do externally can stand for long if you don't change anything internally. By the way, I'm looking at you too, Israel. I mean, I'm speaking to the Edomites, but, well, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I hope you're overhearing this. Now, some of the other things he says there are fascinating, though, where it's like people are going to look and see the difference between Israel and Edom. God's people that value the birthright and their chosenness, and those that don't, that just let it fall by the wayside. And again, if we're talking about us, modern Israel, are there Edomites among us? Or worse, Edom, a little bit of Edom within us. And are there times that we despise the birthright, that we look down on, or, or less, menospreciar is the word in Spanish. I love that word. It, it, I don't know if there's a great English translation, but menos, less, preciar, appreciate. To underappreciate, is that an English word? To think less of our status as God's chosen people? Does that matter to us? Do we even care? Or are we just going through the motions of our membership? Because the day will come where you can make a clear differentiation between wheat and tares, sheep and goats, God's right hand and left hand, Israel and Edom. No wonder he speaks of this border of wickedness or this people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. He's describing nicknames that people will give to the land of Edom. That's not a nickname I want. Remember Hosea's kids? Well, I'll name you Lo Ruhama, no mercy. Yikes. How about you? Oh, Lo Ami, not my people. Those are not the names I want. And these are not the names that Edom would want either. But if there's this differentiation, this is the border of wickedness. Wouldn't you rather live in the border of righteousness? These are the people against whom the Lord hath indignation. Wouldn't you want to live among the people that the Lord has appreciation? You understand the difference here? This reminds me of Moses setting it up and then Joshua pulling it off once they got to the promised land. They get to uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Remember this? Great visual aid. Six tribes up on Ebal shouting curses. Six tribes up on Gerizim shouting, shouting blessings. And you in the middle, kind of valley of decision. Thank you, Joel. As we're listening, which mountain do I want to climb? I think I'll take the blessing side. And even God set up the classroom in advance because Mount Ebal, the cursed mountain, is pretty bare. And Gerizim, the blessing mountain, is lush and fruitful. Take your pick. Side by side, Jacob versus Esau, Israel versus Edom. Which side of the border do you want to live on? I actually remember once driving from Tennessee to, to uh, my family's home, my parents' home in Southern California. It's a long drive. And it's interesting to drive cross country east to west and see green turn to brown. And then become green again once you get to, to the Pacific. Uh, it seems like about uh, Oklahoma City is about the tipping point. <laughs> okay? But I remember driving across Arizona in the middle of summer with five little kids in the back of the minivan. Okay, Can you feel my pain? Uh, and I know the desert has its own unique beauty. I'll take the Grand Canyon any day. But... Driving I-10 between Phoenix and, and Los Angeles, not exactly gorgeous, especially under those circumstances. But it was the first time I crossed there, and I almost started laughing when I saw the California border. 
I swear the Californians must have done this on purpose. And as a born and raised Californian myself, can I confess my state's pride <laughs> in itself? And I swear they did this on purpose because you've gone hours through nothing but desolate desert. Uh, you get nothing but browns and yellows. And then when you see California off in the distance, it's like an oasis. Like seriously, like rub the eyes and it's like, is this a mirage? Because it is lush green farmland. And I swear California did it just to try to prove a point like, welcome to the promised land. There's the border of wickedness. Sorry, sorry, Arizonans, you're wonderful people. Uh, but then these Californians like, now you finally made it. Because the hilarious thing is the green only lasts like 10 minutes. <laughs> and then once you get, get past that, they're like, okay, we're desert too. And it's brown until you get to, to San Bernardino. I mean, it, it's, you can understand what I'm saying here? You look down at like that from above and you're like, uh, which side do you want to live in? Live on? Oh, can I take the western side of that border of wickedness? If you're a northern Californian, you'll get a kick out of this one too. My in-laws are from the Sacramento area. And my father-in-law used to say that if you cross the border uh, between California and Nevada, around Lake Tahoe, it's a beautiful area on both sides. But eventually you do get to a lot of desolation in Nevada. Okay? You Nevadans, you've got to admit this, right? No offense. But my father-in-law said years ago, along that border, if you were traveling west, it was a sign that said, welcome to California. And underneath it, it said, keep California beautiful. But if you were going eastbound and it said, welcome to Nevada, there was another sign that said, help beautify Nevada. And I just thought that was the funniest thing where the Californians are like, hey, we're good. Just don't mess it up. Okay. Whereas the Nevadans are like, please help us, beautify us, plant a tree, do something. Again, that's the sense you get from this passage. And the Lord is trying to make it crystal clear. Which border? Which side are you on? No man can serve two masters. Take a pick. How long halt you, be, halt you between two opinions? Make your choice. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day. Right? There's so many examples of this. And this is the way Malachi is setting it up. It's beautiful. He then says in verse 6, a son honoreth his father. Think about the, uh, the metaphors he's using here. And a servant his master. If then I be a father, which I am, where is mine honor? If I be a master, where is my fear? And that fear is reverence, it's respect, it's deference. Like any servant would pay their master. Except Israel is not paying that to their master as the Lord. They're not treating the Lord as, as Lord. And that's the problem. Notice what he says. He's asking these questions in his, no, in his own name. Saith the Lord of hosts, and then notice the audience. Unto you, O priests, that despise my name. Now that's strong. I'm talking to people that look down on me, that despise my name. And then how do they respond? And ye say, here's another disputation. Wherein have we despised thy name? Like, what are you talking about? We haven't despised your name. We haven't done anything wrong. Can you picture your teenage child saying that? Well, I mean, listen, I haven't done anything to you. I didn't do anything to them. Why are you always on my case? Whoa, calm down. It, it, I, I'm just trying to explain how things have been going. And I get this sense that you're despising my name. From my perspective, there's no honor. There's no reverence. Yeah, maybe there's no major sins of commission. I'm grateful for that. But you've rebuilt this temple, and I think you're still taking it for granted. You're not allowing it to rebuild you. 
having already rebuilt it. Okay, I'm still seeing holes in the bottom of your bag, despite what Haggai said. Again, if I'm the master and I'm giving you wages, are you putting those wages into a bag with holes? Are you going through the motions of your membership? He explains it better in verse 7 and 8. Well, let me explain what I mean by despising my name. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, so here they are, fighting back every time. Well, wherein have we polluted thee? What are you talking about? Okay, I'll, I'll try to explain calmly. You see, marriage therapist, what I've got to deal with here? <laughs> In that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible. Now, I'm shocked that you don't see a, and ye say, right after that with a, well, wherein do we say the Lord, the temple, table of the Lord is contemptible? What are you talking about? I mean, we set up the altar. We, we pass the sacrament every Sunday. We renew our covenants. What do you mean that we think it's contemptible or it's polluted or that we despise your name? Hardly. Wow. The wicked do take the truth to be hard, don't they? They're not soft enough to feel any godly sorrow. They can't take any feedback. They, they bristle every time I cry repentance or point out room for improvement. Change and growth is impossible under those kinds of circumstances. We have to be softer than that. So notice how the Lord explains himself. Okay, how is the table contemptible? Here's what. If ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? If ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Remember the law of Moses. You're supposed to offer your very best upon the altar, upon that table. No wonder it seems from my perspective that you think it's contemptible. No wonder it's, it's from my perspective you're offering polluted bread. Because firstling of the flock? No, that's not what you're doing. Lamb without blemish. That's the last thing you want to give. What are you giving instead? It's the blind, the lame, the sick. I mean, think about it this way when you think of predators and prey. Who are the predators after? They just want a meal. And then the easier, the better. So who are they going to pick off from the edge of the herd? The weak and the wounded. Like the lame and the sick and the blind. Now, can you picture a would-be sacrificer in Israel saying, okay, I know I'm supposed to I'll go give, to give my token offering. Ah, but firstling of the flock? Like, without blemish? No, that's the perfect kind of animal I want to use to breed more of the same. I mean, if I have to give something to God, fine. Let me give him something that probably wasn't going to last long anyway. Uh, if I have to sacrifice an animal, <laughs> this one was about to get sacrificed not to God, but to, to, the, to the predators. And the wolves were going to take that one out. It was only a matter of time. So... Oh, this way I can, oh, I can sacrifice without actually losing anything. I mean, this is genius. Hmm. Okay, yeah, let's give the lame, why didn't we think of this earlier? Let's give the lame, the sick, the blind to God. Because it's just, they're just, the priests are just going to burn the thing anyway. Okay? Do you almost get a sense of Cain and Abel here? Where the command was, give sacrifice. The angel taught mom and dad what its symbolism was. And Abel accepts it and gives an offering that is acceptable to God. Cain rejects that counsel and then gives a sacrifice that is then rejected by God. And you can picture him going, well, wherein is this unacceptable? You asked for something, I gave you what I had. I'm a farmer. I got fruit of the ground. Here, take it. But some lamb of God that's going to come and shed his blood for the salvation of the world, I'm not buying it. 
I have no faith in that. Well, there's no faith in your offering then. That's polluted bread. That's a contemptible table. And that's an unacceptable offering. And he's angry and won't change or soften his heart. This is, it's, it's hard to think of it in our terms because money is money as far as tithing and offerings are concerned. And if you know your Malachi, that's where we're getting in chapter 3, tithes and offerings. But in speaking of offerings, do we sometimes give less than our best to God? And when he's asking for our best efforts, our wide open eyes, and instead we come to him a bit blind spiritually. He asks us to run and to walk, and instead we come up a little lame. He is asking that we come with our very best, and we're, we come sick, and sort of sick of our service. And what I love what the Lord does next, this is absolutely genius, because you know the, 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 disputa- the disputatious, what's the word? The disputatious, there we go, the disputatious side of Israel. Well, and you say, wherein? So almost predicting they're about to do it again. Notice what the Lord says at the end of verse 8. Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Now that's absolutely genius. Because what he's doing is, oh, you don't see anything wrong with this, do you? You think it's totally fine, the kinds of pseudo-sacrifices you're giving to me? Fine, then go treat a mere mortal that way. Yeah, Take one of the local leaders, one of these princes or governors that the Persians have set up over you. Would you try to pawn off that kind of meal to them? No, you would give them the fatted calf. You'd give them your very best because they can affect your daily life, make it better or worse. You're not going to cook up the sick and the lame for them. Then why would you do it to me? Do you not realize that I have the, the power to affect your life for good or ill? Or am I just some distant deity that you don't think much about? To make this a little more personal, let's do the same. And imagine if we were giving someone else, a, a human being that we know, the kinds of things we've grown used to giving to God, and how would they feel about it? How about this one? If we served our boss the same way we served our, in our calling, you, you catch what I'm saying? If we, if we worked in our employment with the same, in the same way, the same level of, of zeal, of, of best efforts, that we, share, that we show when we're serving in our calling, would we still have a job when all is said and done? Or do we go to our boss and go, hey, you're lucky to have me. It's like, no, I don't want to do that just because you're asking me. Like, that calling's beneath me. Or I've already done that before. Or, okay, fine, it seems pretty simple and straightforward. Can I just show up and kind of be a warm body there and assign all the other people to do the teaching and I'll just kind of sit back and supervise? Yeah, I don't know if you're going to... You'll probably keep your calling for a while. We are just grateful you're here. But your boss isn't going to feel that way. Or how about this one? If you paid as much attention on the road while you're driving as you do at church while you're in sacrament meeting, would you still have a driver's license? Or would you have kind of fallen asleep at the wheel and drifted off the road? Or you students out there, if you studied your textbooks the same way you study your scriptures, would you pass any classes? 
Or would you just be going through the motions saying, yeah, yeah, I got to read a few paragraphs to check the box and say that I did it. I can at least report to my professor that, oh, yeah, I did some reading. Well, are you ready when the test comes? You, you get it? Or back to our marriage therapy metaphor. If you treated your spouse the way you treat God, would your spouse still want to be married to you? If you spoke with them the way you spoke to the Lord, they see your name show up on caller ID and like, oh great, another, another call from my spouse. They always say the same thing every conversation and they never let me get a word in edgewise. They, they, they're not listening at all. I'm not even going to answer. Does that describe our prayers? Are we going through the motions? And if we did that to friends or family, bosses or church leaders or to one another, that's a good gut check as we ponder, how am I doing at sewing up my bag? In 9 and 10, he says, Now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Now that's tricky. I, I, wasn't, I was confused, so I looked up like every other translation I could to try to make sense. What do you mean by that? And kind of gathering on those other translations, this is the sense I got. You can beg God for mercy all you want. That's this idea of beseeching God that he will be gracious. But when that's the kind of sacrifice you offer, the lame and the blind and the sick and so forth, why should he listen to you? That's what you get with the, will he regard your persons? I mean, you're just going through the motions. You're just checking boxes. This is Haggai's consider your ways. So Malachi goes on, who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. I need you to give an acceptable offering. That's what we're going to see in chapter 3. This is setting it up, leading to that. But I can't accept what you're giving. I have no pleasure in you, which is tragic considering how this chapter began. I have loved you, saith the Lord. But you're not loving me back. You're not giving these offerings of love. And so they can't be acceptable or pleasing to me. Even the way he put it about shutting the doors or like, why are you kindling fire on the altar? That's all for naught. Now, as I pondered that, think about the, if, it, if the Lord said this, you know, I just wish you would like shut the doors of the temple and lock them up so that people wouldn't even have the chance to come in and, and trick themselves into thinking they were actually making true offerings. Nope, not, not acceptable. Or imagine, oh, instead of having the, the continuous fire at the altar of sacrifice and people are coming, bringing their offerings. Oh, see, look what I've brought. Well, it's, it's lame, it's sick, it's blind, it's not acceptable. What if God just shut, shut it all down, turned off the fire and said, oh, no, sorry, we're not accepting sacrifices anymore. Why? why, why? Well, because your sacrifices aren't acceptable. You know, remember, I've talked about this repeatedly, that throughout the Old Testament, there are all kinds of occasions where there is a rejection and hopefully a rehabilitation of worship. Amos did that. We saw it, the bookends of Isaiah, first chapter and last chapter, where the Lord is saying, forget it. I don't accept any of this stuff. Just shut it down. Turn it off. 
We use the, the analogy of your bishop like overturning the sacrament table or taking your tithing and ripping it up and throwing it back in your face. It's unacceptable because you're not offering it in the right spirit. Let's just, if you're used to checking boxes, let's take the sheet away so there's no boxes to check. And see if you feel a difference. Actually, as I was pondering this, I thought of COVID because in a way God did shut the doors and did turn off the fire. And just, yeah, we're, we're not doing church right now. Now, at first that might've felt like, oh, I got a week off. But as the weeks dragged into months, it's really an interesting question to ponder. Did you feel a difference? If you didn't, that might be even worse because it's like, oh, I, I'm getting nothing right now because I'm not getting any church. But if it doesn't feel any difference, then that means you were getting nothing out of church even when you went. Yikes, there's a bag with holes. If you did sense the difference, did you start missing it? And did you start rethinking, oh, if I only had another chance, I would do it differently this time. I'm seeing its value and what I lack in my spirituality without that. That to me is what the Lord is getting at in this passage, that if we just had a kind of period of cessation, in a way, I was hoping the Babylonian captivity would do that and that you'd return and rebuild the temple and, and prioritize it in ways you hadn't before for a long, long time. These are some great points to ponder for ourselves in our own personal worship. Next in 11, he says this, For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. Wait, among the Gentiles? Wow, they will be honoring your name more than the Israelites? Yeah. In every place, incense shall be offered unto my name. And remember, incense represents prayer as it ascends heavenward. So will it be real, sincere prayer? And a pure offering. So no more of these unwanted hand-me-downs and, and the kind of cast-off sacrifices that the person doesn't want for themselves anyway. No, none of that. There'll be real incense. There'll be pure offerings. And then he repeats, For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. A great among the Gentiles, great among the heathen, the real question. Will it ever be great among the Israelites? The people that actually bear the name of God? You think they can make that name great? Now there's two basic ways to take this. I've been describing one of them. Kind of the insider versus the outsider. And the outsiders have a better view of God than we do? I've actually asked, it's fun at BYU because I have students from all over the world. And I've often asked classes, is it easier to be a church member in Utah or outside of Utah? Or where are the stronger saints? Along the Wasatch Front in kind of the Mormon corridor, as it was called, or out there in the mission field? Where do you make stronger saints? Oh, it leads to some fascinating conversations. In a way, I think the answer is yes. It's less about geography and more about spirituality. And there's incredibly strong members on both sides of that line. And, it's, and there's strengths and weaknesses and there's advantages and disadvantages, right? But I think in some ways it can be a wake-up call to those who live in, in the centers of strength of the church, population-wise. Because sometimes I wonder, is the strength, is it just strength in numbers? Or is there real solid spiritual strength? 
Now, of course, I'll say yes, because I, I know amazing Latter-day Saints right here. But do we sometimes tend, to, or yeah, do we sometimes take things for granted when we're the majority and there's less opposition and, uh, yeah, just, this is just how we live. My years in the South taught me about cultural Christianity. My years in Utah have taught me a little bit about cultural Mormonism. And I will take covenant Christianity over cultural Christianity any day. Okay? I'll take a Latter-day Saint, a saint indeed, over a mere Mormon anytime. So maybe this is a good wake-up call if we're seeing Gentiles and heathens making more of the name of God than we do. We've got some repenting to do in that department. Or a second way to approach this whole idea, maybe he's still talking about Israel, but Israel that has been scattered among the Gentiles, these tribes that have been lost among the heathen. Because maybe if this is a prophecy of the gathering of Israel, and wherever they've been scattered throughout the Jewish diaspora, the name of God will be great. Once they hear this shepherd calling these sheep to return, once the hunters and fishers go out and find them, and then the name of God is great across the entire world, as then they come gathering back to Zion, bringing the people that they've come to know and love along the way. That's a beautiful promise, if that's the case. And even the way he starts it, from the rising of the sun even to the going down. Remember in the old days when they'd say, the sun never sets on the British Empire? Well, in this case, the sun never sets on scattered Israel. And if the sun can ignite them to respond to his call, then the sun will never set on gathered Israel either. We'll all be gathering home. Now, verse 12 and 13, the Lord says, but ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it, and ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And again, ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? Now again, I'm surprised that he was able to say that whole passage without being interrupted with a, well, wherein are we doing these things? Profaned and polluted and contemptible and weariness? And What do you mean I snuffed? What does that even mean? Oh, you mean like that? Something. You understand what the Lord is getting, finally able to get across? The kinds of things that you're giving. It's like a teacher asking a student, is this really your best work? Is this what I'm supposed to accept from you? Is this really what you want to turn in? It does, even the word weariness, what a weariness it is. Do we sometimes kind of send that message that I'm tired of serving in this calling? Or I'm sort of bored at church. What a weariness it is. I actually had a friend say that as he was leaving the church. And said, ah, I just I kind of knew all that stuff. And church was boring to me. And I thought, oh, it was boring to you? Oh, you mean that you started to get to the point where you could run circles around the rest of your ward members? It sounds a little prideful, but in some ways, if you can run circles around the rest of us, I wish you would. I really do. I wish you would. Because if you ran circles around us, number one, it would keep you close. And we love you. And if you were running circles around us, you could cheer us on. Like other people did when you were the one still struggling to lace up your shoes. 
You understand what I mean by that? Beware of whatever it is within us that starts to say, ah, oh, what a weariness discipleship is. Now, verse 14, this chapter ends, but cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great God, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. The heathen know it. The Gentiles know it. Why can't Israel know? What a great king I am. I'm not saying this for my sake. I'm saying it for yours. But do you know who I am? And who I'm trying to help you become? But the problem is, you're giving sick and lame and, and, and blind, and you have better. That's the irony. If that really was all you had, and I said, I'm sorry, there's not a single lamb without blemish in the entire flock. Okay, then I'll just take the first point. Whatever you have to give. This is like the widow's mite. I'm not asking for how much you're giving. I just want to see how you're giving it. And she gave all she had, and she did it with a humble heart, wishing she could give more. You have a male in your flock. You're holding it back. You're withholding it from me. Which lets us know, as far as acceptable offerings are concerned, it's not just check the box and give it. That was Cain's problem. It was give the very best that you have. I actually remember years ago, as a home teacher of a family with young children, I went and taught the kids about tithing. And I used Skittles to do it. Uh, this, these kids I knew would love Skittles. And so I opened the bag and each one got 10 Skittles. And I explained the law of tithing and I said, okay, what do you think? And it was so fun to watch these little kids. Just, it made sense to them. It was clicking. And first of all, it was like, wait, re really? All these Skittles are yours. You're the one that brought the bag. It was nice of you to give us any at all. And when you gave us 10 each, and all you want is a 10th back. See, I was trying to make the math easy for them. Uh, we only have to give you one back, and we get to keep nine? That's amazing. Here. And they each, each of the kids gave me, slid back across the table, one of their Skittles, one of their prized possessions. And I was so proud of them. So were their parents. They were beaming over there. Like, I get it. Okay, there's one in 10. But I wanted to take it to the next level. Okay. And I said to them, oh, you got it. One out of 10, that's 10%. That's a tithe. That's perfect. But let me ask you, what's your favorite flavor, Skittle? Which color do you like best? And one like, oh, I love the red ones. Oh, me too. Can't tell if it's strawberry or cherry, but I love it anyway. What about you? Oh, I love the purple ones. Oh, me too. I think it's supposed to be grape, but I've never tasted a grape that strong. Now, what about you? I love the orange ones. Oh, those are great too. Great choices. Real question then. Um, if you love the red ones best, how come you gave me a yellow one? And if you love the purple ones, how come you gave me green? And if you love the oranges, did you notice that you gave me a red one? Now, what do you think about that? And it was really fascinating to take a tithing lesson up a notch and think, am I giving God my best? Or this one's the lame one. I, I hate yellow. Just yeah, take it. I don't even miss it. That's the problem. For real sacrifice, we got to miss it. We kind of have to wish that we could hold on to it, but then we offer. That way we're offering our heart because our heart was set on that one. That's the one I wish I could have kept for myself. But I'm putting God first. And it was so beautiful to watch these little kids 
understand that and see what that all meant and, and rethink their tithing and swallowing hard, and <sighs> but full of faith, this sweet little kid gave me their, one of their precious red ones. Oh, I only have two purple, but I'm grateful I get to keep one of them. You can have a purple. And <laughs> this is my only orange. I guess I like the other ones too. I hope you really like my orange one. It's my favorite flavor. Can you imagine these sweet little kids? Just getting it. And I want to give God my favorite thing. So often when we donate, we donate our hand-me-downs. And I know there's some need for that. And I'm not saying you, you buy something new just to give away. Although I know of some prophets that have done just that. George Albert Smith was famous for it. Don't give the old coat. Give the new one I just got for myself. The old one, old one was still fine. But to give God our very, very best, that's what Malachi chapter 1 is trying to inspire us all to do. I pray we can do it. Now, he's not done. That's just the first out of four. And so in chapter 2, he shifts gears and speaks more of the priesthood. He mentioned those priests that despise my name first. So we've got some cleaning up to do. And the real cleaning will come, will come in chapter 3. But in chapter 2, let's talk about the priesthood and the, the oath and covenant of the priesthood. In some ways, this is the Old Testament equivalent of section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where you'll find the oath and covenant. In verse 1 and 2, Now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. Yeah, you who ought to know better. If ye will not hear, and if ye will not lay it to heart. And I love that phrase. Lay it to heart. Let it into the innermost part of your soul so that it changes you. But if you won't do that, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings Yea, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. So again, are you really listening? Are you really internalizing what you receive from the Lord? If not, then what you're receiving won't end up being the blessing God intended. I'm fascinated by that phrase, I will curse your blessings. How do you do that? Well, think of it this way. Unto, whom, unto him whom much, to whom much is given... Much is required. And if you sin against the greater light, and that light was intended to be a blessing, then you'll receive the greater condemnation. Ah, that blessing becomes a curse. I fell short of God's expectation when he gave me every opportunity. So you priests that ought to know better, are you sinning against the greater light? Are you falling further because I lifted you higher? Be careful about the blessings. I don't want those to come back to bite you. Don't want them to become curses. Verse 3, Behold, I will corrupt your seed. Which sounds shocking. Like, what, you're going you're gonna to corrupt my own children, my posterity? Okay, other translations are better on this one. The NIV, I will rebuke your descendants. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. You're rebuking me, and you'll rebuke my descendants. Oh, does that mean they're, gonna, they're not going to be any better than I am? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm suggesting. If you don't change to get better, how do you expect them to turn out, right? So, yes, I'll end up rebuking your descendants. And then it gets really strong. And spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. Now, that's nasty. Can you picture God smearing animal feces, dung on the faces of his priests? That's nasty. 
But in some ways, it's the punishment fitting the crime. In some ways, it's an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth or dung for dung, if you want to put it in those terms. Because think about it. If you're taking the animal sacrifices that, don't, that aren't acceptable offerings, the lame and the blind and the sick and so forth, you see, to, to cre- have a, a true offering, remember this is the book of Leviticus, right? Uh, the priesthood book, handbook of instructions for ancient Israel. And when you have an animal sacrifice, you're, the priests are supposed to know what to do with like every body part. And what do you do with the kidneys and the call of the liver? What do you do with the skin? What do you do with the dung? Yes, even that was explained. And you don't want dung to be part of what you're giving to God. You know, you're supposed to separate out those parts and then dispose of them or burn them outside of the camp, away from the temple. But if you're just bringing the whole thing and then just dumping it on, because it's just easier this way. And all this, all the specificity of the sacrifices, oh, what a weariness that is, believe me. And here's the Lord saying, okay, well, you want to know what that feels like? Here's some enforced empathy once again. And it's, you're supposed to have empathy for me. Those are not acceptable offerings. In a way, you're taking the unclean and, and keeping it with the clean. You're not drawing a line to separate. You're not distinguishing between the, the sacred and the profane. In fact, if you really want to get graphic, you're taking that unclean sacrifice and you're shoving it in my face. You're, oh yeah, you're rubbing my face in that uncleanness. Well, two can play that game. And so imagine me spreading dung upon your face. That's what unclean sacrifice smells like. Strong, strong imagery. Verse 4 and 5, And ye shall know, famous language that you often see when they're off in enemy territory or coming back from it, ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you. And here by commandment he means warning. I warned you, I gave you the heads up on this that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. So I'm giving you this wake-up call in hopes that the covenant with Levi might continue. I'm trying to purify the priesthood here, okay? I promised things with Levi, that priesthood tribe. And then he goes on, my covenant was with him of life and peace. That's what it was supposed to be, life and peace. I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. And again, that's the good kind of fear. Reverence, honor, worship, respect. That's the kind of, of love and worship that Abraham had. He sought me honestly, sincerely, worshipfully. He chose me, and I chose him. Same with Isaac, same with Jacob. Now, you have to skip a bunch of, of generations to get through Egyptian bondage, but by the time you get to Moses... What tribe was he from? Oh, yeah, Levi. His brother Aaron, what tribe was he from? Yeah, Levi. And they feared me. No wonder I made my covenant with the Levites and chose them in the place of every firstborn of every family, gave them the priesthood, and then told them, I chose you to choose everyone else. This is a blessing with its a responsibility attached. Make sure these covenants of life and peace get to all the house of Israel. That's how it all began. But it's been a while since we've been in that condition. Will you repent? Will you change? In verse 6 and 7, he says, the law of truth, and the word law there in Hebrew literally is Torah. 
So he's saying the Torah of truth, true instruction, word of the, the word of the Lord through Moses, that law was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity for the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And remember Malachi, my messenger? That's what the priesthood was supposed to be. Every priesthood holder is a Malachi. Anyone serving under divine direction is a Malachi. That's male and female, by the way. But are you worthy of this? Are you walking in peace and equity with God? Walk, by the way, in Hebrew, that's where they get the word halakha. And the halakha is your walk. Your daily walk, it's like your, your behavior. I mean, you get the Torah, here's the law, but then how do I implement it in real life? Well, that's the halaha. So you got Torah and halaha, and they're both hinted at there in this passage. I gave them this. Are you keeping it? Are you allowing this to govern your daily walk and conversation? Are you living the gospel as, as expected? In verse 8 and 9, the answer is no. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law, which is tragic, because back in the earlier verse, what's the priest's responsibility? To turn many away from iniquity. But now, your bad examples are turning them towards it. They're, you're causing many to stumble. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. That, that we, No wonder we're going to see in the next chapter, we need a purified priesthood. You've corrupted the covenant, the oath and covenant of the priesthood. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Ooh, partial in the law. What do they call it? Cafeteria Christianity? Just partial? Ah, uh, this is a commandment I like, so I'll take that one. But ooh, you, no, I don't want to, I'm not going to live that one. Well, no wonder they're being looked down upon by people when they should be, People should be looking up to them as examples of what they should be. In verse 10, he says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Then why do you deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? You see, the covenant is just as significant horizontally as it is vertically. And what we've been seeing up to this point is the vertical commandments. Are you honoring God and loving Him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength? The answer is no. You're corrupting that covenant. But part of the covenant is horizontal as well. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're not doing that either. You're not guiding them back to God. So you're breaking covenant in both directions, up and out. In verse 11 and 12, he says, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved. He hath married the daughter of a strange God. And that could be literal or metaphorical. If it's metaphorical, then it's covenant infidelity, as usual. You're supposed to be married to me. Instead, you found, you, you got married every Baal and Asherah out there. Pagan pantheon. And, and that every prophet that we've been studying has decried over and over. But in this particular context, I wonder if part of this is also the literal, that you have married daughters of strange gods. You've married outside the covenant. 
You see, if you stay in Babylon long enough and you start getting Babylonified and, oh, their standards don't seem quite as, as distant as they were when you first moved in. That's just how they do things here. And that's fine. It's not that big a deal. And pretty soon you mix and mingle and marry. And then you're living at their level. That happened a lot in the Persian period. Excuse me, the Babylonian period, which is why not everyone came back. And in Persia, even harder in some ways, because the Persians were nice. Live and let live. In fact, live and let you live with us. And many did. When we were studying Ezra and Nehemiah, do you remember that incredible chap those incredible chapters in Ezra 9 and 10 were all about godly sorrow? And what were they sorrowing over? They finally realized what they had done wrong in marrying outside of the covenant. This was a real problem among these people at this time period. And the Lord is calling them out on that. Marriage to the daughter of a strange God. He goes on in verse 12. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. The master and the scholar included. Out of the tabernacles of Jacob and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. Hold on to that kind of language about offering offerings. Okay, we're going to see more of that as we go on. But it's interesting he would pull out the master and scholar specifically. Yeah, you people. You see, masters, oh, they're in charge. They have power. They have prestige. Often they have wealth. And scholars, oh, they're, they're smarter than the rest. Are those the type that look down on the commandments of God? And walking in his way is just beneath us. His law? Oh, forget that. I've got, I'm a law unto myself. President Benson actually said that the people that have the hardest time being humble enough to follow prophets are the proud who are learned and the proud who are rich. Notice he didn't say the learned and the rich, but the prideful who are. It's not that money's the root of all evil, but the love of money is. And I think the love of learning in the wrong way or for the wrong ends, that's probably a close second. Here we see the master and the scholar. But you're not going to be able to flex your way out or pay your way out of consequences. And you scholars, you're not going to be able to think your way out either. Yeah, humble yourself and come to change. That's the only solution. He says in verse 13 and 14, And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with crying out, insomuch that... And a better translation for that conjunction is not in so much, but because. So you're crying all over the altar because he regardeth not the offering anymore or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. So your tears are actually over rejected offerings. This doesn't seem like godly sorrow. It seems more like the sorrow of the damned. Like, darn it, he saw through it and he realized that the animal I offered was lame and sick and blind. Oh, woe is me. Because now I'm going to have to give something good. I've got to get rid of my best skittle. Are you kidding me? Yeah, these tears are hypocritical. These tears are not tears of true contrition. Which makes sense. Your offering is not connected to your heart. So it's not a broken heart and a contrite spirit that you're giving. Not at all. Now notice the next phrase. Yet ye say... Oh, I thought we were past the disputation stage. No, 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 no. I'm just taking a quick break. So when I say this, what does Israel say in response? Wherefore? Which means why? Well, why won't you accept our offerings? We're giving them to you after all. 
Well, do you really want to know? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Keep saying that word. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Again, metaphorically or literally, you haven't been faithful to your covenant companions. That's the problem. In verse 15, he says, Did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Now, that's pretty understandable, at least a little, but the New Living Translation is even simpler. Hold on to the King James, but let me reread it through this other more modern translation. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? Since that's what we've been talking about here. Didn't he take twain and turn them into one flesh instead? In body and spirit, you are his. You should be connected to God. He's your covenant companion. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. That's the phrase of that he might seek a godly seed. He wants godly children out of this, out of this wedding, this marriage. So guard your heart. That's the idea of take heed to your spirit. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. I love that. You see, we've seen repeatedly here this metaphor of God as husband. But what he really wants is the metaphor of God as father. Then it's not metaphor. <laughs> That's true. What I've been after all along is a godly seed. That's what I'm seeking. And the reason I'm marrying myself to you metaphorically, and the reason you ought to marry within the covenant, literally, is it's, it enables you to have godly seed, to raise children in righteousness, to have them born in the covenant. Do you understand the, the purpose here? I chose you. I mean, speaking of Torah, when does Moses get the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20. But what does he learn in Exodus 19? So this is what you ought, this is the lens through which you ought to view the commandments that are coming one chapter later. Exodus 19, he says, My goal for you is to be a kingdom of priests and an holy nation, a peculiar treasure that will be my treasure above all the peoples of the earth. I'm choosing you so that you can then choose them and bring them all back to me. A godly seed. That's what I'm trying to accomplish here. But what kind of example are we setting for our children if we're not keeping covenants? That's not godly seed. So he says in verse 16, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. And by putting away, he means divorce. In other words, God is trying to avoid divorce at all costs. But he says, for one covereth violence with his garment. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. That's that same idea again. Take heed to your spirit. Guard your heart. Or like one of President Kimball's old talks, lock your heart. Lock the wicked world out and lock me in. That's where I belong. You're locked into my heart. I have loved you. And always will. I mean, it's interesting, this talk of divorce. He hateth putting away. Divorce was actually what was required of the people back in Ezra chapter 9 and 10. It's, we, we got ourselves into this mess, marrying outside of the covenant. And this is, 
best case scenario, they convert. And now we're back in the covenant. But this, this was a hard thing that the Israelites were trying to accomplish in Ezra 9 and 10. Go reread those chapters. They're powerful. But as far as God's marriage to us, not only does he hate putting away, he refuses to do it. Remember Isaiah's language? Where is the bill of thy mother's divorcement? You show me the divorce papers. I didn't sign any. I don't believe in it. I will continue to work with you and give you another chance. This is Hosea refusing to give up on Gomer. Just come back and let's get some more marriage therapy. I forgive you for interrupting every time I say anything. Yet ye say, what do you mean I interrupt every time? I, I still love you, Gomer. I always will. The chapter then ends in verse 17. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Remember back in chapter 1 when they were saying, complaining, what a weariness it is? Well, you're not the only one that's a little tired of this. You've wearied the Lord as well. Yet you say, another disputation, well, wherein have we wearied him? What do, you, what do you mean he's tired of us? Well, we're tired of him. Well, when ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? Yeah, those are the things that tire me. Those are the things that weary me. When you look at me and accuse me of being an unjust judge, because in the short term, the wicked might be prospering. We're going to see more of this in chapter 3 in a moment. But that's, that's a problem here. Maybe this is among the mighty. Maybe this is among the, the, the learned, the scholar, the master, thinking, but they're the ones that are prospering. They're the ones in charge. Look at them. Now, they must be doing something right because you're blessing them, obviously. Remember that problem with Job and his friends that were a little too myopic when it came to keep the commandments and you'll prosper in the land? It's like, well, that doesn't always happen immediately. Or, uh, or sin equals suffering. If you sin, you always suffer. Or if you're suffering, it always must be because of sin. Eh, not always. It's not in the short term. And here they're making those kinds of false accusations against God. Everyone that does evil must be good in your sight because you're blessing them. No, don't you remember a few books ago, I am slow to anger because I'm giving the wicked time to repent. I'm holding out hope for them. So where is the God of judgment? Right here. And I'm trying to patiently pass judgment for you by calling you out in love and letting you know that there is a covenant that's being corrupted that there are offerings that cannot be accepted. My dear people of Israel, those whom I have loved, please love me back. Give me your very best because that's all I've ever given to you. Now, if that's the first half of Malachi, the second half, these last two chapters of the whole Old Testament as we have it, what a crescendo to end on a high note. What you need to understand about chapter 3 and chapter 4 is this is what the restoration is all about. You remember in section 128 when Joseph says that Malachi had his eye fixed on these things, restoration of the priesthood, last days, genealogy and work for the dead? Well, this is an old statement by the time Joseph is speaking in 1842. Because a much younger Joseph, a sleepy 17-year-old in 1823, 
has these chapters quoted to him in the middle of the night by an angel of the Lord. If you remember in Joseph Smith history when the angel Moroni appears to Joseph, September of 1823, and after introducing himself, shock and awe there below, after explaining Joseph's mission and explaining the Book of Mormon's role in that mission, then he shifts gears and starts quoting Old Testament. Like, while we're talking about ancient scripture, let me quote some to you that you've already got. And where does he begin? He begins with Malachi, chapter 3 and chapter 4. Listen to this passage in Joseph Smith History, chapter 1, verse 36. After telling me these things about the Book of Mormon and so on, he commenced quoting the prophecies of the Old Testament. And where's the best place to begin? Well, at the end. Let's begin with the end in mind. And here it is. He first quoted part of the third chapter of Malachi, and he quoted also the fourth or last chapter of the same prophecy. Though with a little variation from the way it reads in our Bibles. And we'll see that variation when we get to chapter 4. The variation makes all the difference. But I, I love that Moroni goes there. Yeah, he's going to quote some Isaiah also, and he's going to quote some Joel, and he's going to quote some Acts. There's a lot of, I mean, this is a great scripture lesson from Moroni himself. But to begin with Malachi, no wonder Joseph has Malachi on the mind, even 20 years later. Now, unfortunately for us, maybe it's just because we were missionaries and we were teaching the law of tithing using Malachi 3 as our text. We'll get there in a moment. But I have a feeling that's not the portion of chapter 3 that Moroni was quoting. Is he really going to wake up the prophet and say, quote this scripture to him again and again and again throughout that night, just to make sure he understands tithing when that day comes? No, he's got a bigger mission than that. And so what portion would he be quoting? Most likely the first few verses. It's a masterpiece. Look at verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger. Now that's a great play on words, because how do you say my messenger in Hebrew? Malachi. Here it is, his message from Malachi himself. I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now there's a lot of messengers in that verse. He describes the Lord who's suddenly coming to his temple as the messenger of the covenant. I mean, he personifies it. So when he comes, he's coming with covenant. So he is the messenger, but there is another messenger that pre precedes him. In fact, who prepares people for him. Now, we're going to see by the end of chapter 4 that that messenger is Elijah. But you know, if Elijah is a Hebrew word, that means my, the, the Lord is my God, or my God is Jehovah, El-E-Yah. How do you say that in Greek? Elias. Now, Elias is interesting because it's a name, Elijah, but it's also a title. And it's a title for what? A preparer of the way. Now, in, if you're studying New Testament, who's the Elias? Who's the messenger that's going to go before the face of the Lord when he suddenly comes? Well, John the Baptist. Hmm. Aaronic priesthood ordinances. Preparing the way for whom? The Lord. Ah, oh, Melchizedek priesthood ordinances. Clear out sin, thank you, Aaronic priesthood. Introduce God, thank you, Melchizedek priesthood. Okay, we studied all this last year, section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay, these two priesthoods and what they do together. But here's this, a preliminary messenger preparing the way for the messenger of the covenant. 
as it all comes. Now, that's New Testament version. What's last day's version? Well, part of it is Elijah. He is coming to, to prepare the way for the second coming. That's a sudden coming to the temple. But you could also say Joseph Smith was an Elias preparing the way. You could say the restoration itself, all of us, messengers that the Lord has commissioned to go before his face to prepare the world for the second coming of his son. That's our role. Joseph, you awake down there? Sorry to wake you in the middle of the night, you 17-year-old, but you got work to do. You have a messenger to prepare for, and you're a messenger to do some preparation. Like I said, we all are. Verse 2 and 3, though, answers the question, will we be worthy to perform those roles? The Lord has some questions for us. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? And those are key questions. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, when he's describing the sixth seal, the seal that precedes the coming of Christ, this preparatory dispensation, the dispensation of the fullness of times, ready to prepare the earth for the ushering in of Jesus Christ. It's interesting because he, he symbolizes this sixth seal with an earthquake. The central symbol to describe the last days is the shaking of the earth. No wonder there's so much shaking of faith out there, right? Unshaken saints. This is our time period. But how does John end chapter 6 of Revelation? with the same question that Malachi ends the Old Testament with. This is the final verse of Revelation 6. For the great day of, the, of his wrath is come, kind of Armageddon, end of the world, and who shall be able to stand? Same thing Malachi asked. Who shall stand when he appeareth? Who can stand unshaken during the shaking of the earth? Well, here's part of the answer. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. Why? That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, do you understand why chapter 1 and chapter 2 were so important leading to this? What kind of offerings were they giving? The lame and the sick and the blind the unacceptable. So draw your line in the sand and check what border you're on and sew up your bag and become more faithful to give me an acceptable offering, an offering in righteousness. You're going to have to be righteous yourself to do it, but I'm here to help. I'm here to cleanse and purge and purify. If you're here to prepare for me, I'm here to purify you. You are gold and silver after all. The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. You've just allowed some impurities to enter in. There's some water that's watered down the wine. This isn't pure gold or silver, but I know it's in the ore. And if we can burn out those lesser metals, the fuller soap, if we can scrub out the stains, the refiner's fire, if we can melt out the dross, so all we have left is precious gold or silver. That's how I see you. Is that how you see me? I love this passage. We just have to be changed. We just have to be cleansed so we can make that offering we've always intended to do. And who's his target audience here? The sons of Levi. 
right? A prophet whose eye was fixed upon the restoration of the priesthood. Now, sisters, you need to pay attention to this. And you brothers, you need to know this for the sisters' sake, okay? Because when it comes to sons of Levi, that's sons and daughters. He's speaking collectively here, okay? Notice this. I mentioned that this is a lot like the Old Testament's equivalent of section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the oath and covenant of the priesthood. Let's get there, shall we? Because it explains who the sons of Levi are. Uh, and it's not gender specific. So look at section 84, verse 31 and 32. To this point, the Lord has already been talking about Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood so far, and he's been focused on the ordinances more than the ordination. There's a difference. Ordination to a priesthood office is confined to males, to sons of Levi. But the ordinances of the priesthood, and that's always the focus, is non-gender specific. The ordinances are meant for both daughters and sons. I've never yet laid hands upon my own head. Okay? And so therefore all. And with that in mind, listen to section 84, verse 31 and 32. Therefore, as I said concerning the sons of Moses, for the sons of Moses and also the sons of Aaron shall offer an acceptable offering and sacrifice in the house of the Lord. Uh, does that language ring any bells? I mean, he's quoting Malachi 3 right there. Here's the acceptable offering. Who's going to offer it? Sons of Moses, sons of Aaron. Now, what tribe were Moses and Aaron from? Levi. There's the covenant of Levi that Malachi talked about in chapter 2. And this promise that he made of life and peace, the, the Torah, here's the law, the halakha, here's how you walk, here's how you do it to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But are we still being too male here? Are we just talking sons? Now, notice what he says next. The sons of Moses and of Aaron shall be filled with the glory of the Lord upon Mount Zion in the Lord's house. So this is a temple text. They just rebuilt it in Jerusalem, right, Malachi? But then the next phrase, whose sons are ye, and also many whom I have called and sent forth to build up my church. And does he only call males? Does he only send forth sons? Or is this male and female? Anyone that is sent forth to build the kingdom of God. Elders and sisters. Senior couples. Anyone who's ever been set apart to serve in a calling. Remember Elder Oaks's great talk about women and the priesthood. If they have authority, the only kind of authority there is, is priesthood authority. So when you are given authority to function in God's name in any way, you have priesthood authority. Hopefully you also have priesthood power, which comes from righteousness. A little more fuller soap, please. A little more, can you crank out the refiner's fire? I need some more purification personally. But here we are, the sons and daughters of Levi, because we're part of the restored priesthood upon the earth. He then adds in verse 33 and 34, still in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, for whoso is faithful unto the obtaining these two priesthoods of which I have spoken. Oh, wait, obtaining in terms of ordination? No, don't limit yourself to that. The Lord always prefers talking about ordinances. So if you've been faithful and obtained Aaronic ordinances, that's the preparatory gospel, and Melchizedek ordinances, that's the culmination of the gospel, eliminate sin, introduced to God. Have you received both levels of ordinances? Have you been faithful in obtaining these two priesthoods? Next, and the magnifying their calling, whatever the calling that might be, in young men or young women, in elders quorum or relief society, 
in primary or Sunday school or wherever it might be, if you are magnifying a calling God has given you and authorized you through a divine setting apart to perform, then what's the promise? They are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies, whether that body is male or female. They become the sons of Moses and of Aaron or the daughters of Moses and of Aaron too. Can you picture Miriam speaking up like, here, 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 Miriam the prophetess, that is? They become sons and daughters of Moses and Aaron. That's priesthood. They become the seed of Abraham. That's Abrahamic covenant. They become the church and kingdom. There's Zion upon the earth. Yea, they become the elect of God. All these synonyms, this resounding promises. That's who you are meant to be. A kingdom of priests, that also means a kingdom of priestesses. Kings and queens, priests and priestesses, is what the Lord is trying to turn all of us into. That's his covenant. But we have to be refined. We have to be purified for us to be able to offer that offering in righteousness. With all of that in mind, then section 128 makes sense. And we're back in the attic with Joseph. As he's wrestled with a passage from Malachi that he heard 19 years earlier in a different attic of sorts. It's all coming full circle. But in this beautiful letter that he sends with all these exclamation points, he says in section 128 verse 24, Behold, the day of the Lord is at hand. He's ready to come suddenly to his temple. In fact, he already did back in 1836 in Kirtland. Oh yeah, same time Elijah came. The Lord came too. Hmm. Keep reading. The day of the Lord is at hand, and who can abide the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appeareth? You hear him quoting Malachi 3? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. You get it? The angel Moroni's words finally make sense. I've been chewing on this for the last two decades. And now as I'm finally understanding priesthood keys being restored in the Kirtland Temple six years ago. And what I've learned lately about sealing power. I get now why Elijah came and binding families together and turning hearts. We'll see more of that in chapter 4. Uh, for us to understand work for the dead, that most glorious of subjects, no wonder we need to pay more attention to a prophet whose eye was fixed on it and fixed on the restoration of the priesthood because it's going to require priesthood authority and power to accomplish all of that sealing work. No wonder we have to be purged and purified. Maybe that's why, that's why Missouri was such a refiner's fire. We've got to be ready for this. The second half of that verse really puts him in perspective as it clicks for Joseph. All these years of line upon line, precept upon precept, it's coming together. And so he says, let us therefore, or as a result, because it's finally making sense, let us therefore as a church and as a people, as Latter-day Saints, do what we were called upon to do. May we offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And how's this for one? Let us present in his holy temple when it is finished. We're now working on Nauvoo since we've been ejected from Kirtland. 
may we present in his holy temple a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. How's that for an acceptable offering? Coming from a purified people who are keeping the covenant and the priesthood promise. That better describe us. Do you remember what the Lord has been hoping for all along? To bring forth a godly seed? I'm trying to gather Israel and everyone that they've intermingled with throughout history. I'm trying to bring the whole family home. And that's where this whole message clicks for Joseph Smith, where it's, it is family, but it's God's family. And as we connect all of those people, connect all the dispensations, gather together in one, all things in Christ, that's the mission of the dispensation of the fullness of times. That's our day. That's our work. And when we finally get it, that's why we gather Israel on this side of the veil through perfecting the saints and preaching the gospel. That's why we gather Israel on that side of the veil through redemption of the dead. Because it brings everyone home. What an offering we can offer the Lord in righteousness. That's not lame. That's not sick. That's not blind. Oh, we finally have eyes to see. And we want to bring everyone there. I've mentioned this before, but I find it so fitting that when a foreign dignitary or head of state comes to visit the First Presidency in Salt Lake City, what's the, the normal gift that's given? Their family history. Nobody knows it better than the Latter-day Saints. And so as we've searched for your ancestors, this is where you come from, president or king or queen. This is who you are. And talk about a meaningful gift. Well, if that's the kind of gift we give to kings, imagine the gift we are meant to give the king of kings when he returns. Same thing. Here is your family tree. All present and accounted for. None that the Father hath given you have you lost. And we've done the work to bring everyone together and reunite the human family, the godly seed. That is our offering in righteousness. Do you get a sense of why we have to be purged and purified and prepared to do it? When you look at verse 4, talk about an, an understatement. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old as in, and as in former years. Pleasant? <laughs> yeah, I think so. So, verse 5, I will come near to you to judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. You've been second-guessing my judgment throughout Malachi so far. Well, prepare yourself. I will come swiftly to judgment. But I will end up being a lawyer for the prosecution against you because you have been prosecuting the people for whom I want to be a lawyer for the defense. You remember all those protected classes throughout the Old Testament? Widows, fatherless, strangers, poor. That's the horizontal covenant we must be keeping if we ever hope to keep the vertical aspect of it as well. In verse 6 and 7, For I am the Lord. Can you hear Leviticus repeating there? Has he said it so many times then? I am the Lord. I change not. 
Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So the only reason you're still here is because I haven't changed. And that's a good thing for you because I'm slow to anger, rich in mercy. I'm holding on to the covenant and holding on to hope that you'll eventually keep it. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances. That's the problem. You have not kept them. So please return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Now that's beautiful. If I'm sitting there in marriage therapy and my husband says that to me in mercy, Gomer, please, if you'll just return to me, I will return to you. I haven't left, but, but I'll, open, I'll receive you with open arms. But tragically, how does this passage end? But ye said, oh, no, 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 not now, now, no, not, don't, please, don't interrupt and throw that beautiful promise back in his face. Just humbly accept it. Say, thank you. I'm sorry. I will return. But no. But ye said, wherein shall we return? What do you mean return? Where do we, we never left. Oh, really? Okay, fine. I'll tell you where you've turned away from me. Verse 8 and 9. Very famous. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? What are you talking about? We've never taken anything that belongs to you. Well, what about in tithes and offerings? As a result, ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me even this whole nation. You see, to rob, to steal, that's taking something that doesn't belong to you. And to rob from God through tithes and offerings, he's serious. It all belonged to him. He gave you the ten skittles, but... Keeping all ten is, is theft. It's robbing from God what rightfully belongs to him. And what's he going to do with it? Care for the widow and the orphan and the stranger and the poor. So you're robbing vertically, which ends up robbing horizontally as well. And notice it's not just tithes he's talking about. He includes offerings in the same breath. Tithes is a solid 10%. If you give less than that, it can be a really generous offering at 9%, but it's not a tithe. Tithe is 10%. That's what the word means. But offering, there's no limit there. How generous can we be? Can we sacrifice and give away some of our favorite Skittles? Because if you love them, perhaps that orphan there would like the green one too. You understand what I'm saying? When you see that, then verse 10 becomes so beautiful. And this is the passage that every missionary ought to teach to anyone that needs to have a testimony of the law of tithing. He says, bring ye all, and that's a high percentage, all the tithes into the storehouse. Notice, it's not my treasure house. It's my storehouse where I store things to be able to give to those in need. You're not trying to enrich me. I'm trying to bless you. So bring the t all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house. I'm not the one that's going to eat it, but others will. And then my favorite passage about tithing you'll ever see. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. It doesn't get any better than that. The windows of heaven? Open them up so I can just keep dumping out these blessings upon you. Pour it out. You won't be able to handle how much there is. 
In fact, there's a beautiful passage in Luke chapter 6 where he describes what he'll give you if you give to him or to others. And it's quite the return on investment. The ROI is out of this world, literally. He says in Luke 6, 38, Give, and it shall be given unto you. But here's how much. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. I mean, take that verse apart and look at every phrase, and you're, you're getting piled on with the blessings of God. You're getting buried beneath the blessings that are flowing out from the windows of heaven. Think about it. Good measure. You see, if you're, kind of, if you're trying to rob someone, you don't, you're, it's shrinkflation. I'm not going to give good measure. Like, oh yeah, that's a full cup. Not really. Whereas God, no, he gives good measure. If he says he's going to give you a, a cup, it's a full cup. If he says windows of heaven, it's, it's filling the whole window. So number one, good measure. Number two, pressed down. You ever done a recipe that calls for a cup of flour? Well, if you just scoop into a kind of a fluffy, <laughs> you know, the flour is, hasn't been packed down at all, and you get a, a, a freshly sifted, how's that? And you get a, a, a cupful. Well, if you pack it down, press it down, it's amazing how compacted it can get to the point of how much more flour you can fit into the cup. That's what the Lord's after. Oh, it's already good measure. Ah, pack it in. We'll see how much more we can get in there, shall we? Second was pressing down. Third, shaken together. Because you see, if you shake something, then sometimes it'll settle even more. So we just want to get this down as much as possible. So there's room for me to keep on piling in the blessings. Because the fourth one, (laughs) even the cup isn't going to hold it all. Because I'm just going to keep dumping it in. Even after I've pressed down and shaken it together, it's still overflowing. To the point that it's not enough for me to give it into your hands. (laughs) You can't hold it all with that way. I'm going to have to give it into your bosom. That's the fifth part. You ever been told that, you know, can you carry these books and you got a few in your hand? It's like, oh, no, no, just like put your arms out and I'll keep stacking it up and up and up until you can barely see over it. And you like put your chin over the top book to kind of try to hold it all in. That's how generous the Lord is. Give to others. Give to him. Quit robbing from God because you're only robbing blessings from others. And in reality, you're, you're robbing blessings from yourself you'll end up cursing your own blessings, and that's tragic. So just give. Open your arms and open them wide, because if you'll give that widely, you're going to need your arms that wide to just receive what God is trying to bless you with. Such a magnificent passage. But the other thing I love about it is the way the Lord says to prove me now herewith. I didn't always understand that. When I was young, I thought that tithing was a test of us. Well, it is a test. But it's our chance to test God, not God's chance to test us. You see what he's saying there? He's not, I'm going to prove you with this. See if you'll obey. No, I want you to prove me with this to see if I'll bless you. Or to see if I'll leave you hanging. To see if I'll let you starve. Or... Test me to see my math and see what I can do with 90%. You'll be amazed. I can do more with 90% than you can do with 100. Believe me. In fact, on my mission, I remember teaching a family the law of tithing and giving them that challenge because it was hard for them. This was a poor family. And they were concerned about the law of tithing. Like, I don't know if I can afford that. Man, this is really a test. Yes, but it's a test of God to see if he'll carry you through. And make sure that ends will meet. Well, now, ooh, okay, I, I love the way he said that. But ooh, it still feels like a test for me. A test of faith, at least. 
granted. Now, this was a test they wanted to pass. They just didn't yet have the faith to do it. But they came to church the following Sunday, which happened to be a fast and testimony Sunday. And our elders quorum president happened to be speaking. He was a convert. And the salt of the earth, such a good and humble man. He worked for the city in a sewage trunk, truck, pumping sewage when too much rain was overflowing the sewers. Nasty job, but it, was to, it provided for his family, and so he did it. No complaints. But that month had been hard for that family. His wife had been sick. He's explaining all this from the pulpit in his testimony. My wife was sick, and we had, our, we had food money and we had tithing money. And all the food money went to hospital bills and doctor visits and medicine. Until by the end of the month, the only thing we had left on the shelf was the tithing money. The rest of the cupboards were bare. The fridge was empty. We didn't have food because we'd used the food for, the, for doctors. Now, I, I confess, it crossed my mind. God understands. He's not going to make us starve. I still have my tithing money. I'm sure he's going He didn't have to have my wife get sick. He could have solved that problem. Um, and then I would have been able to afford to pay my tithing. But I've got no food. He said, but then I remember those missionaries that taught me a few years ago. And the faith they had in the law of tithing. And so I decided to prove God. Okay, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. You're going to have to be creative here. Because I know I'm putting you in a real tough spot. Giving tithing when somehow you're going to come up, have to come up with food for me and my family. But I paid my tithing. I just trusted. And the craziest thing happened. I, I had no idea he was going to give this testimony to this family that we just taught the law of tithing to. But they were all ears, and so was I. And this sweet elders corner president said, you know, funniest thing. My mom came to visit from Nueva York, from New York, the other center of the Puerto Rican universe. She hadn't announced her visit. She didn't tell us she was coming, but she just kind of came into town. And we were thrilled, like, hey, mom, so glad to see you. Let me help you with your luggage. And it's like, whoa, why'd you bring so many bags? And why are they so heavy? How long are you staying, mom? And she just kind of laughed and said, oh, no, no, I'm just a little, little visit. Uh, most of the suitcases are full of canned food, some rice and beans. And I don't know why I brought it all. I just had a feeling to, to bring it. And this sweet elders corn president from the pulpit was laughing, saying, we're still eating out of the suitcase. Because God opened the windows of heaven. Talk about faith preceding the miracle and the miracle coming. I don't think God was as nervous about his test <laughs> as we sometimes are. In fact, one other story quickly. When I was a young husband in a married student ward, I was assigned a wonderful couple to home teach. Husband was a lifelong member. Wife was a recent convert. Full of faith, but they couldn't come to church because he worked on Sunday. And it was, you know, you're a starving college student. You'll take whatever work you can get. And his wife was pregnant, so it's like, i got to be able to provide for this new family of mine. And she would try to come, but she was so new in the faith. And without her husband there to support, it was tricky. And so I'd go and we'd talk and got to know this wonderful couple. They, were one, they were, really were amazing. And I remember one day just talking to them about church and just, I know you want to be there. And they did. And, and is there anything we can do to help? It's, it's just this job that I've got. And it was the wildest thing. I'm usually not that bold. 
It's more of an understanding. Yeah, I'm trying to prove the contrary, but I'm leaning on the side of mercy every time, right? And it's, I understand, and I'll just keep praying for you, and I hope it works out. But instead, I felt guided to Malachi 3 and about daring God to bless you. And since time is money, I turned money into time and said, can we talk about tithing, but a tithe of time and keeping the Sabbath day holy? Now, I, I wouldn't blame you if you throw me out of your house after this, but I really feel strongly like I'm supposed to tell you to prove God here with, to see if he won't open the windows of heaven and bless you and your sweet family. That somehow, if you put him first, he'll put you first. And if you carve out time to be able to come to his house of prayer, he'll answer your other prayers. In a way, I basically said to this good brother, in the name of the Lord, I dare you to quit your job and keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, I've never said that to anyone else before or since. I'm certainly not saying that to you since I don't know your situation. But the Spirit wanted that message conveyed to this good brother. And then I kind of swallowed hard and thanked them and left before they could get mad at me. Well, they didn't get mad. In fact, the following Sunday, I saw them both at church. And I was stoked until I remembered, wait a minute, oh no, did they? Oh, and when I'm like, hey, so good to see you. How's everything going? Did you get the week off or something, the weekend off? And he just beamed, so full of faith and joy. And he said, no, I just really felt what you said. And I quit my job and I'm proving the Lord. We'll see what comes. And I was like, that's amazing. But on the inside, I'm like, no, no, you did? Ah, oh, you're, you're dead. I mean, I don't know how this is going to work. And I can picture the Lord up there going, oh, Halverson, come on, O ye of little faith. You're not the one that made the promise. They're not daring you. They're daring me. And I told them to. I'm not nervous. I'm God. And I was amazed and relieved when this good brother, faster than I even imagined, got a job that allowed him to keep the Sabbath day holy and even paid him more than the earlier job did. Now, not every story of sacrifice is going to come out with that exact happy ending. But I do testify that every story of true sacrifice does always have a happy ending. One that involves heavenly windows and a blessing that cannot be measured because it's according to what Elder Maxwell described as the Malachi measure. <laughs> no room to receive. I'm sure of that promise. I bank on it. In verse 11 and 12, here's part of that promise too. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. The beauty of that is that sometimes blessings come not as an increase in credits, but rather a decrease in debits. You're getting a little bit of both here, but to rebuke the devourer, no, all your crops will come to fruition. How's that for a promise? All your vines and your fruits, and, and you'll have it all. In, in our day, since I'm not a farmer, but this, this promise, the Lord has rebuked the devourer for me so many times, where somehow that car keeps running, even though it's running more on faith than on fuel. <laughs> we have a car affectionately known as tribulation. And it's getting older and older and worse and worse. And it was bad when we got it. And it dies all the time. Or it won't start. 
and I don't know how to fix cars. And <laughs> often I've shown my kids how to do this. Just pop the hood and like wiggle a bunch of wires, whatever you can see, and then pray really hard and start it up. And almost every time it works. There's a few times we've had to pray twice and wiggle extra. <laughs> but it's amazing how often the Lord has rebuked the devourer for my sake. Or a bill just doesn't come due. Like, that's weird. Or like debt forgiveness. You've been paying every month for so long. It's, your student loans are covered. What? Really? It's amazing how creative the Lord can be in allowing us to meet our needs. And as he says in verse 12, All nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. They'll be able to see which side of the border is dirt and which side is green. They'll be able to tell the difference. They will call you blessed because there'll be something different about you. And not just some kind of temporal prosperity. No, a deeper one. Something spiritual. You're not as self-centered. You're not as selfish. You're not as worried about the ups and downs of the economy. You almost seem immune to that. Well, in a way, I am. The Lord rebukes devourers for my sake. He opens the windows of heaven. Bear or bull market? Ah. How about a lion of the tribe of Judah market? How about a lion and lamb market? I'll take that any day. He then says in verse 13 through 15, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. And by stout, he means strong or hard or harsh. Yet ye say, there it is again, well, What have we spoken so much against thee? What are you talking about that we've been stout? Well, let me answer. Ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. This is what, like what we saw earlier about your judgment's all off and wicked people are prospering. That's what they're still complaining about here. It's vain to serve God. You don't open the windows of heaven. Those blessings don't come. Well, have you been offering an acceptable offering? But what profit is it? It's interesting that that would be their word. I'm not getting ahead here. Well, measure your spiritual prosperity right alongside your temporal, and you are coming out ahead if you put me first. But this idea of the proud are happy and the those that work wickedness are set up, that is tricky because we do see that all around us. And there are times that the wicked do seem to be getting ahead, even sometimes at the expense of the righteous. This is the problem of theodicy, right? The problem of evil. It's like, why? Yeah, this isn't working out right. But notice what the Lord says in verse 16 by way of answer. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Now, how does verse 16 respond to the stout words in 13, 14, 15? My friends, my children, the story's not over. Yeah, the wicked might be prospering now, but wait till the end of it all. The piper is on his way, and they'll have to pay him. The righteous are suffering? Well, just wait. Heaven's a ways up there. So when I open the windows and start pouring out blessings, sometimes it takes a while to get here. 
And many of those blessings won't arrive until after this life, but they will be worth the wait, believe me. You see, God is a meticulous record keeper. There's a book of remembrance, he says here. I'm hearkening, I'm hearing, and I'm recording every act of faith, every offering in righteousness. And I will make sure when all is said and done that you'll know that I did right. We're only in the middle of Act 2. Don't start judging me until the end of Act 3. By then, you'll know that I knew what I was doing. He says in verse 17 and 18, to finish this great chapter, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. So please serve me, sons and daughters. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. You see, you're, you're looking at things too early. You're judging prematurely. Right now, in the middle of life, mortality, act two, it is all one big jumble. And there's all kinds of injustices and unfairness. But be patient and have faith. I am your father. You are my children. And when all is said and done, if you'll just be faithful, you'll be mine. When I make up my jewels, you'll be one of those precious stones. You're gold and silver after all. Why do you think I'm refining you? And if you understand all of that, then you're ready for the final chapter. Malachi chapter 4, this chapter is so important that it's, some of its words are found in every single, every single one of our standard works. Here they are as the capstone of the Old Testament. You see them again in the Book of Mormon where Jesus makes sure the Nephites know about this. You see it in the Doctrine and Covenants, where it's our first chronological revelation. It's the words of Malachi. Excuse me, the words of, Mor yes, the words of Malachi. But coming through the words of Moroni to that sleepy 17-year-old Joseph Smith. And since he repeats the story in the Pearl of Great Price in Joseph Smith history, well, these words are there also. Pick your book of scripture. You can't get away from this message, from this messenger. He begins it in verse 1, For behold, the day cometh. And yeah, it's that day, like we saw last week, this last day. But the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now we saw some burning earlier, but it was a refiner's fire to purify the sons and daughters of Levi. This one's different. It's not purifying, it's purging. It's not a cleansing fire, it's a consuming one. And what's it consuming? The wicked, like stubble. Remember after harvest and all you have left, you got the good grain, all you have left are the little bottoms of the stalks. So if you look across your field, it looks like an unshaven field, just the stubble. And rather than try to pluck up all of that, just burn it. And it'll burn out and return some, nutri return some nutrients to the soil. And now you're ready for next year's planting. That's how the allegory of the olive tree in Jacob 5 ends, with burning the vineyard. Or the Doctrine and Covenants, the field is white already to harvest. Fast forward, now the field is white already to be burned. And that's the promise. This is the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world. This is Armageddon. But, verse 2, unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. He shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. 
No more wild animals trying to eke out a meager existence. No, a calf in the stall. Domesticated animal. Cared for, under a roof, fed every day. Taken care of. Why? Because the sun of righteousness has arisen upon them, shedding its glorious light. Because the wings of the mother hen have been extended and there's healing in every feather. I don't know if you remember because it was a few thousand years ago. <laughs> uh, in Leviticus, I guess that's only a thousand years. That's, that's memorable. In Leviticus chapter 1, remember we were starting to study sacrifice? burnt sacrifice and sin offerings and all these kinds of things. And I, was, I told you this story that I was haunted by Amulek when I first started studying Leviticus. Because Amulek said in the Book of Mormon that every wit of the Law of Moses is meant to point forward to that great and last sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And I held him to his word. So I start with Leviticus and I'm like, okay, these are some really weird rituals. Uh, and what you're supposed to do with different body parts in the sa animal sacrifice, all of that points to the sacrifice of Jesus? This is all atonement imagery? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll try. And I remember getting to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 16, which was talking about burnt offerings when it comes to birds. If you're too poor to give an a, a larger animal, well, some turtle doves will do, for example. But what's the priest supposed to do with it? This is Leviticus 1, verse 16. He shall pluck away the bird's crop with his feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east part by the place of the ashes. And I'm like, okay, Amulek, help me out. What's that supposed to mean? How does that make me think of the atonement? I had no clue. I kept thinking about it. But the only impression I got was, oh, just keep reading. It'll make sense later. Well, I read all of Leviticus and still didn't have a clue. And then went through Numbers and Deuteronomy and left Moses behind. Still didn't have a clue. But just keep reading. Well, God's sick sense of humor <laughs> buried the answer on the very last page. Thank you very much. But when I got to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2 and read it, thankfully, Leviticus 1 was still in the back of my head somewhere. And the Spirit dusted it off and was like, hey, remember? Look here. And all of a sudden, it clicked into place. You put the, the bird feathers on the east side of the altar where the ashes were? Wait a minute. The ashes, like the, from the stubble when the earth is burned at his coming? Oh, you mean the east side of the altar where the sun arises from? Because here you're seeing the sun of righteousness arising. And it's capital S, so you'd think sun as in son of God, but it's S-U-N, so ah, the light of the world, uh, which comes from the east. Okay, this makes sense. With healing in his what? Oh, I get it. In his wings. Feathers, east, altar, ashes. It's all right here. And are we ready to come to the mother hen when she clucks and calls? Because he's calling right now. Will we come? Verse 3 and 4 tells us what will happen if we do, if we do come. Ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. You'll rise above it all. Those ashes will be beneath you. So remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, that's Sinai, for all Israel, with the statutes, with the judgments. Remember the Torah, remember the Halakha, Get the law, get your walking down the covenant path, get it all straight. 
This is what I'm asking. This is what the Lord has been asking. Why? Because he wants a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and priestesses. He wants a peculiar people. So let him purge you, sons and daughters of Levi, so you can keep the priesthood promise. Now do you understand why verse 5 and 6 are so key? Why Moroni would quote it over and over and over until it was drilled into that young man's mind to the point that when he finally went back to Malachi and saw it in Scripture, he's like, wait a minute, that's not exactly how Moroni quoted it. Oh, but those differences, they make all the difference. So look at them side by side. Here's the way Malachi gives it to us. Verse 5 and 6, the last passage in our Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah. I told you my messenger would come to prepare the way. That's what Eliases do. That's what Elijah is for. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, unfortunately, the whole Old Testament ends on a, <laughs> a downer note like that one. It ends with curse. Ouch. Well, maybe it's just one last warning to try to get our attention. Like, come on now, avoid this. Be better than this. But what a great grand finale. Elijah will come. In fact, what a great setup for a sequel. I mean, think about every Marvel movie you've ever seen. And the way it ends, it's like, oh, you want, <laughs> you're making more movies. You want me to come back. I know this isn't the end. And Malachi's doing just that too. Oh, I'm sending you the Elijah the prophet. You just wait. And no wonder the Jews are still waiting. No wonder on Passover they set an extra, di uh, an extra uh, plate for him. And then go open the door and hope that it's time for Elijah to come. Or when you go to a synagogue and see the fancy ornamental seat known as the seat of Elijah. For whenever he comes, well, he has come. He came to the Kirtland Temple in 1836 and he came to do just what Malachi had said he would. But Moroni's version is more clear along those lines. So how's this for difference? Because there's still some confusion of there, like what's exactly Malachi going to, I mean, what's Elijah going to do when he comes? I mean, eat Passover and sit in the synagogue? Uh, those are good, those are important, but is that it? Here it says something about turning hearts and so on, but how does he do that? Well, ask Moroni. And Moroni can help us interpret Malachi better than anybody. So here's his version. You can find it clearly in section 2 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet. And yes, that's what he had come to do in Kirtland. Restoring priesthood keys. Specifically what kind? Sealing keys. So there, he's, there he is revealing priesthood. He does it before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. And the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. That's how this turning takes place. Because promises are planted. And if it were not so, he summarizes in conclusion, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. That utterly wasted is the curse that Malachi mentioned. But the fact that this version ends with his coming rather than his curse, oh, that's an upward note. 
He's going to come. Our job is to prepare the world for it, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's why he's preparing us and purging and purifying us. That's why we're trying to get all this ready so we can have an offering to offer the Lord in righteousness. How's that for hearts turning upward and outward and inward and just trying to get everyone home? That's what this whole thing's about. Now, what I love about this, if this were a Sesame Street episode, this portion of the lesson would be brought to you by the letter P and the number three. Because there were three P's that Moroni added to Malachi's message. The P of priesthood, which Elijah came to reveal, and the P's of promises being planted in hearts. And boy, would they grow and change everything. There's also three P's in the Abrahamic covenant. Since you're the sons and daughters of Moses and Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the church and kingdom and the elect of God. What were those P's of the Abrahamic covenant? First P, posterity. Seed like the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. Second, the P of promised land. Oh yeah, on the good side of the border, the green side. Land flowing with milk and honey for you, Abraham, and your descendants. And the P of priesthood and all that that entails, the blessings of exaltation. That's what I'm promising you. And if Elijah can come and reveal a sealing priesthood power, such that what is bound on earth can be bound in heaven, including couples and parents and children. Talk about godly seed. Talk about marriage within the ultimate covenant. When God says, I don't believe in putting apart, I don't believe in divorce, that's for sure. I don't even believe in death till death do you part. Get death out of here. What do you have to do with this? No, this family is forever. I'll see to that. So these blessings come, this this priesthood power. But then what about these planted promises? Notice here when he says the, the promises made to the fathers will be planted in the hearts of the children and then their hearts will turn to their fathers. There's a difference between the fathers and their fathers here. Now the fathers, if you added a little Latin there, would become the patriarchs. Potter, father. So the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel, mm, house of Israel, that's who we are. Abrahamic covenant, that's what this is all about. So the promises made to the fathers, that's the Abrahamic covenant. Those are the peas. And if those peas can be planted within my heart, then how does my heart not help but turn to my fathers who never received them? Now do you understand the difference between the fathers and their fathers? Once I know that God is working in me like he worked through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I want my parents to have that, my grandparents to have that, and all my ancestors to have that. I want everybody to have that. How do I get it to them? Oh, Elijah will help. A little sealing power. Go to the temple. It'll come, go there suddenly, every chance you get. <laughs> It'll all work. It'll make sense. You see the power of sealings in the temple? I mentioned this last year when we studied section 2 of the Doctrine and Covenants, but it, it were, is worth repeating. We renew baptismal covenants when, we're, when we take the sacrament, right? Uh, and God wants to in, in, adopt us into all kinds of family relationships. He does it at baptism. That's when we get Christ as the father of the covenant and the church as the mother of the covenant. Well, what about this one? Because God renews the covenant on Isaac directly. He renews it upon Jacob directly. 
Does the Lord ever renew it upon us directly? Or are we just part of the family because we're seed of Abraham? Well, if you obtain these two priesthoods and all of their ordinances, including the highest crowning ones in the temple, then you will receive the Abrahamic covenant renewed upon you directly. But it'll only come when you're sealed. Not when you're baptized, not even when you're endowed, only when you're sealed. Because think about it. When you are sealed and receive the promises of the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what are those blessings? They're the three Ps. Posterity, like the sands and the stars. What do you think eternal increase is? You'll never get to that level of posterity in this life. It has to be eternal marriage, and that's temple sealing. What about the P of promised land? Well, the ultimate promised land is the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, which is reserved for those who have been sealed in the temple. And then the P of priesthood and all that it entails. Well, what about patriarchal priesthood, which is synonymous with matriarchal priesthood, since you can't have patriarchs without matriarchs. You could call it familial priesthood, best of all. And that's only a possibility when you are sealed. Where then now an Abraham has found his Sarah, an Isaac has found his Rebecca, a Jacob has found his Rachel. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has become the God of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. And that's hearts turning. That's promises planted. That's the purpose of the temple. And why we're trying to gather all of Israel, yet all beyond Israel, in to become the people of God. These verses are thrilling when you really think about it. And we better think about it. Because if we don't perform that saving work, if we don't pull that off, so we have an offering to give the Lord in, in righteousness, the records of our dead, we did it all. All present and accounted for. No empty chairs. Because if we don't, then what happens? How did he warn us at the end? He'll smite the earth with a curse? No, even better, or maybe even worse, the whole earth will be utterly wasted at his coming. Because what's he coming for? To see if we did that work. If it's done. If he can accept the book we've given him. Now, tie back in verse 1 with what we just saw in verse 6. Because in verse 6, we get a sense of family, hearts, children, fathers turning to one another. There's connections. But in verse 1, burning down the field, he talked about a tree with no roots and no branches. Ah, now do you see what kind of tree he's referring to? A family tree. And if there's no roots, that's who I came from. Those are my ancestors. No branches, that's what grows out of me. Those are my descendants. And if I'm cut off from roots and branches, then all that's left of me is a single, solitary log. And why did God create the earth? So we'd have a place to prove ourselves, prepare ourselves, be purged and purified, and join the covenant connection with God and with one another. Learn to live the two great commandments. Learn to build Zion and to do it right in within your, the walls of your own home, in your own marriage, within your own family. That's why we're here, to create eternal families. And if we don't, then why did you come? What, what was the purpose of life for you? What an utter waste of a world if you didn't use it for its intended purpose. I was 
we ended up with a logging camp when what God intended was a forest of family trees. Each one a tree of life, bringing fruit like you've never eaten before. Do you understand why we're here? Why we need to serve so diligently? Why we need to offer offerings in righteousness acceptable to the Lord? Why we need to lean into these priesthood promises and magnify our callings within? This is the purpose of the whole thing. It's why the Lord sent us. It's why he's given us these scriptures. What a way to end the Old Testament, to be honest. This is what he wants us to hold on to and prepare for and, and look to in our future. I'm so grateful for the words of Malachi and all the words of the Old Testament that precede it. I'm grateful for a sense of identity that I received from these words. I know who I am. I know who you are. Do, do we? Do we sense who our Father in Heaven is and who He wants us to become? No wonder Joseph Smith needed to know this and that he wrestled with it for 20 years and beyond. No wonder the Lord needed the Nephites to know this too. In fact, remember, after he quotes Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, he's expounding all of this, giving you a lesson way better than the one I just gave you now. But what does he say in summation? Look at 3 Nephi 26, verse 1. These scriptures, which he had not with you, the Father commanded that I should give unto you, for it was wisdom in him that they should be given unto future generations. I testify of the truthfulness of that statement from the Lord. It is wisdom in God that we, future generations, should have these words to remind us, to inspire us, to instruct us. These are words of, of identity and purpose. These are words to remind us that we are the sons and daughters of Levi and the seed of Abraham and the church and kingdom and the elect of God. That it's on us to allow him to purge and purify us. We are gold and silver in his hands. If, he'll just, if we'll just let him burn out the impurities. If we can stop giving the lame and the blind and the sick. And start giving God the very best that we have. Gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. We have a modern Malachi among us. And President Nelson. Pleading for us to prepare the earth for the coming of her king. There's work to be done. May we not rob God of the time he's given us, the talent he's given us, the blessings and gifts that he has so generously poured out upon us. May we offer them back in return. May we extend them outward to one another, especially the widows and the orphans and the strangers and the poor. I testify of a God who loves us as he said at the beginning of these chapters. I testify of a God who wants our heart, wants us to turn it to him so he can then turn it to one another. I pray that we can catch the mantle of Elijah that falls to earth on Elisha's everyone. I pray that we will 
allow the world to live up to the measure of its creation by us doing the same. I want to be part of that forest of family trees. Branches <laughs> intermingling with one another. I'm grateful for the privilege it's been to mingle my branches and connect them to yours. I love these words. I testify that they are meant for us as future generations. I know it is wisdom in God that we have them. Now it needs to be wisdom in us that we might live them together with all the words that precede it. This is an Old Testament, but it's part of a new and everlasting covenant. A covenant we're meant to keep. And I testify of it gratefully, humbly, and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.